Good morning again. Uh, if we haven't met, my name is Charles, Charles Johnson. I'm one of the pastors here, one of two. Uh, Matt is unable to be with us this morning. He's not feeling well, so please pray for him. Um, but we're beginning a new series. I'm pretty excited about this one. And I would be remiss if I, uh, if I didn't uh, share with you that the, this series is really inspired by some work done by a man named Dick Kyes. Dick Kyes is uh, a retired past, former pastor, retired pastor. He's really an intellectual. He's written several books. He uh, directed Labrie in Massachusetts for a long time. He's one of those guys that went to Harvard, you know, like one of those guys. And, uh, and he told he, he said, uh, he gave a story, he told a story once about how he, um, he was thinking about all of the new disciplines of thought that have surfaced, even just in the last 10, 10, 20 years. Like new philosophies of understanding, new dis- whole new disciplines of thought have emerged. So much more information is available now than, than uh, perhaps ever. And yet, we are still, we are like asking more questions now than we ever have. And, uh, and you know, the, the proposition of Christianity is that Jesus is the God of the universe. That he's the God of all understanding who came to earth to be with us. And you would think that with, that with all of these questions that we have that are kind of intuitive to our nature, that Jesus would spend more time answering questions than he does. You know, like think about all that he has to teach us. And yet often when we look at Jesus' life, what we see are him actually asking questions of us. All told, there are about 200 questions recorded in the Gospels that Jesus asked. Once you kind of strip out all the, the same stories across the Gospels, he, he asks of his people about 200 questions, and each one has a purpose. Sometimes he uses them to stretch. Sometimes he uses them to correct or reprove or to challenge. But each one is a glimpse into the heart of Jesus. It really is a glimpse into the hopes that he has for his people as well as his concerns for his people. This morning, we're going to look at a question he asked right at the very beginning, like the launch of his public ministry, where Jesus, curiously, is found at a wedding feast that has run out of wine. And he asks the question, what does this have to do with me? Let's look together. This is John chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 1 through 11. Hear the word of the Lord. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples when the wine ran out. And the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim and said to him, said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. 
And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, Oh, Lord Jesus, uh, we are looking at you in this story and we want to learn from you. Um, We want to grow in love for you. And so we ask that you would speak to us, uh, that you would help me to love these friends well over these next few minutes and honor you with the things that are said. Please help me. Please help me, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So it's always interesting to me. Um, uh, you know, those that are in a life of ministry often look at Jesus's ministry, uh, and it's always interesting to me whenever I consider the work of ministry and like the pace and the conversations that we have, like every, it, sometimes it feels like everything you say is kind of, and everything said to you is like freighted with such importance. It's always interesting to me that the very first thing that we see Jesus do as he's launching his public ministry is enjoying a wedding feast with people. There's something behind that. Uh, Recently, uh, we've seen, over the last few months, we've seen several people uh, enter their names into the presidential race. You know, next year's an election year. And and each one, you know, over the last few months, several have actually launched their campaigns. And the location of where they launched their campaign was, like, strategically chosen. Uh, What they said was important, but also where they said it bore some special meaning that indicated something about them and what they were about. And here what we have is Jesus actually launching his campaign, his, his, uh, his public ministry, and a wedding feast that has run out of wine. And the key to understanding that this is, this is supposed to shape our understanding of who Jesus is and what he, uh, and, and what he came to do is, is right there in verse 11. If you look in verse 11, you see that John calls this Uh, act that he performed a sign. Now, there are several different words that can be used to describe one of Jesus's miracles. John prefers the word sign. He uses that word more than, than any of the others. And what a sign does is it points beyond itself to something deeper that we should be understanding. And so what John is telling us is that as we look at this story, it is telling us something important about who Jesus is and what he came to do. It's telling, us something, it's telling us something important about his identity and his purpose. And so that's what I want to talk to you about. First, I want to talk to you about how he addresses confusion about his identity and how he offers clarity about his purpose. Those are the points for this morning. Confusion about his identity, clarity about his purpose. Uh, first, confusion about his identity. Um, <clears throat> that's a really interesting interaction that Jesus has with his mother, isn't it? I mean, she says, they have no wine. He says, what does this have to do with me? Um, so what I want to do is talk uh, about the setting of this request that comes to him, uh, the problem that she proposes to him, and then I'm going to get into what, how Jesus responded to her. First, the setting. Um, much like today, weddings in, uh, in this context are an idealized event, and they should be. I mean, this is a grand event. It was taken very, very seriously. Everything was done at a grand scale, okay, in the town. It was like the town's, uh, one of the town's biggest celebrations of the year would have been 
a wedding ceremony. And the way that it worked in the timeline was that you had a wedding feast, okay? And then you had the wedding ceremony, the night of that first feast, okay? And then at night, after the couple had been married, they're literally paraded through town in a torch-lit parade and they, uh, to their home. And they, they take the most circuitous route possible so everybody in the town can like express their joy at this wedding that has happened. And then after that, they don't go on honeymoons, okay? After that, what they do is they have like an open house party, a feast that will go on for several days, even as long as a week. Like people are just dropping in, coming and going all the time. It's this, it's just this huge event in the life of the town. And central, central to the life of this party is the provision of wine. And that's where we get to the problem because this is such a, this is a big problem that they have run out of wine. Mary is, uh, is not just a little bit troubled that they have run out of wine. She comes to Jesus knowing that this is a big problem, assuming that everybody else would think this is a big problem too, right? So she comes. Now, why is that such a big deal? Well, it, it's a big deal for, for two reasons, at least two. One is because to run out of wine is a major social like faux pas. It's majorly embarrassing for uh, the one who is responsible to provide wine at the wedding feast. Okay? It's a big, it's a, it's a, it would be a big black mark on whoever's responsibility it is. And for a wedding ceremony, the responsibility falls to the bridegroom. I read a couple of stories this past week about how dramatic the response could be uh, if the bridegroom failed to provide enough wine for the party. It's actually a, a big deal. So it could be that Mary is just looking to protect like the social standing to protect the bridegroom from experiencing shame when she comes to Jesus with this request. But there's actually a deeper issue here, okay? And, uh, and, and it's because wine, throughout, throughout the Hebrew scriptures, wine is constantly used as a symbol for the joy that God intends for his people, Like over and over and over again, you see references to God giving wine to his people or God giving wine that they might have joy. Psalm 104 talks about wine that gladdens the heart of man. Uh, Proverbs 3 talks about uh, God's gift to his people and describes vats bursting with wine. Um, Proverbs, uh, Judges 9 is a really interesting passage. It describes wine that cheers both God and man. Wine is understood as this universal reminder of the joy that God desires for his people. Wine equals joy. When we look at this passage, we're talking about wine in the context of joy. So when Mary comes to Jesus and says they have no wine, she might as well have been saying they have no joy. And that's the problem that she brings to him. And, and, it, and it can leave us a little bit puzzled, right? Like she, does, it, does it sound at all like an unreasonable request? Out of anybody there, Mary knows best who Jesus is at this point in his life. Does this, does this seem like a... Like if you were present and you heard what Mary said, and then you heard how Jesus responded... Would you, would you at that point be wondering about their relationship as a mother and a son? 
right? You'd probably have some thoughts, wouldn't you? What is behind? What is behind this? Uh, there's a lot behind it. But to our ears, it can, it can feel difficult to hear. He says, woman, what does this have to do with me? Now, first, it says, uh, I, I, I want to address the first reason it can feel like a harsh response, and that's because he addresses her as woman. That's a very literal translation in the, uh, in the Bible. Some translators have tried to soften that a little bit. In the NIV, he says, dear woman, commentators are really at pains to, to try and help us understand that that's not as harsh to their ears as it is to ours. It's actually a, understood as a fairly courteous, if not distant, remark. Um, uh, the thing that helped me out the most uh, with trying to understand that is that's the same way that he addressed Mary when he was on the cross, and he was uh, um, affectionately entrusting her care to the Apostle John. He addressed her the exact same way. So it's not as actually as discourteous and harsh an address as uh, it initially sounds like to us, it's, uh, it's, it, um, it's not difficult because of what he calls her. These words are difficult because, they're, because of what they're doing. She is coming to him as his mother. And you can even see that in the... Um, she, she says, they have no wine. Like, that's something your mom would say, right, kids? When you walk in the kitchen and, they say, and the mom says... The trash is full, but like, right? Like there's this implied instruction that's behind that, right? She's coming to him as his mother, and he seems to be creating distance between the two of them. Why is he doing that? It's interesting to me that it seems like almost everywhere Mary appears in the story of Jesus' life, he seems to be creating some distance with her. The most, the most obvious story of this is the one in Matthew 12. Uh, when he is in a town, he is teaching some people. Um, Mary, his mother and his brother show up and word gets to Jesus, hey, your mother and your brothers are here. And what does he do? He, he looks at the crowd and he says, who are my mother and my brothers? And then he gestures at his disciples and says, whoever does the will of my father is my mother and my brothers. What, what is going on there? Listen, when the angel Gabriel came to Mary and told her what was happening, he said, you will bear a son. And he said, this, this son will be a particular honor to you, but will also be a source of real sorrow for you. That you will bear a son, you will call his name Jesus, he will be son of the most high God. And later when she took him to the temple, the priest Simeon, when he blessed Jesus, said, uh, blessed are you, but she, he also told him that she will experience a great sorrow as he fills this role of Messiah to the people. What Jesus is doing is making a declaration that it is now time to begin what he came to do. That he is the Messiah, the Son of God, the sacrificial lamb for his people. 
And what this means for Mary is that he is now taking up the responsibility that comes with his identity. And she is now, this is hard for her, but she is now going to have to share him with the world. And watch, watch him endure suffering and pain. Either for their opposition or for their salvation. But listen, that's what it means for Mary. What this means for you, and this is really important, is that he is saying, he is also declaring an intense solidarity with his people. Like an intense love for his people. He is saying that you, his people, those who do the will of my father are my mother and my brothers. He, he is saying there, there is such deep affection that he looks at his people like their family. He is telling us that when one day we are in front of Jesus face to face, it's going to be like a family reunion. Actually, that's not it. It's better than that. He's, he's, the Bible tells us over and over and over again that when we are face to face with Jesus, physically, like we are spiritually united to him right now, it'll be like a wedding feast. One pastor put it this way. He said that the, the Bible is at pains to describe the kind of relationship Jesus desires with you. It's not just a relationship like a king has to his subjects, although that's there. That's part of it. It's not just a relationship as a mother or father relates to their child, although that's there too. But it's more like a relationship in the way that a groom relates to his bride where there's delight and trust. And the only result is perfect joy and perfect peace. That's what he desires for you. And you see right there the ways that his identity is beginning to overlap with his purpose, right? You know, it's interesting to me that many times you see uh, in Jesus, he, you know, somebody might make a request of him and initially he says no, but then he goes on to fulfill the request in a particular way. And every time he does, he's like showing something that's true about who he is. He's, he's showing something that's true about his purpose, what he came to do. And that's what we see here. Like it contained within this miracle is just rich symbolism for who he is and what he came to do. Uh, he, is, he is like establishing some kind of clarity about his purpose. And look, I have no idea. You might know. Maybe you have a good idea. I don't know what happens between verse 4 and verse 5. Did you see that? Like he says, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come, right? And, uh, and then she turns to the servants and just says, do whatever he tells you to do. Like she, she knew... This is like the best buddy cop movies where they like look at, they have these unspoken moments where they know each other's, you know, tics and mannerisms. They know what each other are going to do. Like that to me actually points to the depth of Jesus's relationship with his mother. That even though he responded to her saying, why, you know, why would I do this? He actually, uh, she knows he's going to do something. So what does he do? Um, And he declares his purpose. And here's the way I want to go through this. I want to talk about 
how he uh, introduces a new chapter, how he brings joy in abundance, okay? Introducing a new chapter, bringing joy in abundance. First, he's introducing a new chapter. This is a significant. Jesus' Jesus's ministry is introducing a significant shift for how the people understood their relationship to God, okay? F.F. Bruce puts it this way. He says, Christ is changing the water of Jew- Jewish purification into the wine of the new age. Hang with me here, okay? You see this in verse 6. You see six stone water jars. Now, those stone water jars are there for the purification of those who were there to attend the party. They were used for ritual cleansing. Uh, these uh, these uh, Hebrews would... Um, <clears throat> cleanse themselves with water before going to the temple or any other religious ceremony. It would have been there in order to be clean as you go into one of these wedding feasts. It was probably the cleanest wedding feast you've ever heard of, okay? And, uh, but that's what those were there for. And, so, and they were made of stone because stone was seen as uh, impervious. It was the cleanest you know, thing that they could provide for their people. So you had these massive stone jars that were there. And what does Jesus do? He takes the water, he fills it up to the brim, and then he turns the water that's used for cleansing with wine meant for consuming. This is a, this is a rich picture of the gospel right there. As he is saying that you become right with God, not because of something you do to yourself to make you clean but because of something you consume that's been given to you. That he is now replacing duty with the receiving of joy. And later Jesus will point to a cup of wine and say, this cup is the new covenant of what? Of my blood. We've seen this We sing the song every now and then. You've probably sung it before. What will wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. He's replacing water with himself. First John tells us that it's the blood of Jesus that cleanses us from all sin. He shed his blood so that we can be clean. And his body breaks so that we can be healed. He said, my hour has not yet come. There are two other times. This is one of three times Jesus refers to his hour. And each time he's talking about his crucifixion. He says, the hour is upon me, right? So from the very beginning of his ministry, what we see is Jesus pointing at this new chapter that is ushered in at the end of this ministry. He's also showing joy to those he brings, to the, the joy he brings to those who belong to him. This is a new chapter that's characterized by joy. And I say that because look at what you have in this passage. You have a bunch of people at a party who are all clean but have no wine. They're all dutiful, but they have no joy. Listen, the religious life can feel like that sometimes. Like we can work hard, we can be dutiful, honorable, trying to build lives that matter and be bereft of joy. But what do we see here? Let me ask you, do you, do you believe that Jesus is actually, 
concerned about your joy? Do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus is pursuing your joy? He seems to be interested in the joy at this party. And not just because he gives them wine, but because he gives them like the best wine. I was on the phone with a friend of mine earlier this week, and she said to me, I cannot wait to drink the wine at the wedding supper of the Lamb. The master of the feast drinks this wine and said, listen, have you ever had a moment like this where like later in the party or you're having a dinner with some people and suddenly like they open a bottle of really good wine? You know, you're like, this doesn't fit. Like the master uh, is telling, the master of the feast is telling us that Jesus Uh, we can look for wine in all kinds of places, but there's only one place where we can find our heart's real desire. But only Jesus gives us wine that really truly satisfies. Uh, Earlier, I think it was earlier this year, so Netflix has a a documentary out right now about uh, Johnny Manziel. Um, So uh, it's, uh, it's, it's really an interesting depiction of his playing career. If you remember him, some of you I know probably do remember him. Uh, but he won his Heisman as a, as a freshman in college at Texas A&M as a quarterback. He kind of lit the college football world on fire for two years. Um, <clears throat> but in the documentary, what you see is that he, uh, he led a very, tr- like a very hard life. Um, after like just dealing with the pressures of what he was doing and then, you know, kind of his life as a professional quarterback unraveling once he went to the Cleveland Browns. And this documentary, I just found him really refreshingly honest. Uh, it, It was really well done. It was just interesting to see how honest he was about the decisions that he made and the consequences and all that. Um, it's not for the faint of heart if you're interested in it. It's also not for all ages. But he said this, and I just wanted to give it to you. This is what he said. He said, uh, by the time he had arrived in Cleveland, he had everything that he ever wanted. But it didn't take him long to realize that he would never be happy there. He said, I had money, I had fame, your first-round quarterback battling for a starting position. And when I got everything I ever wanted, I think I was the most empty I ever felt inside. So we can spend our whole lives hunting for joy. But where will we find it? You know, I think sometimes we miss or or forget that the fruit of the Spirit includes joy. You know, in the same place that Jesus served the cup to the disciples, he said this to them. He said, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. What did he do? He connected his joy with your joy. Listen, Jesus is promising joy. That's the promise. That's, in, that's, that's one of the things that's so amazing about this is he's promising joy. And listen, not a little bit of joy, okay? This is abundant joy. Uh, you can do the math for yourself. Uh, six stone water jars between 20 and 30 gallons each. Um, <clears throat> that's going to do it, isn't it? That's enough. That's enough. I think that's going to that's gonna be enough. What is that, 120, 180, something like that? He is promising abundant joy. And 
that's Jesus' purpose, is to, is to introduce this new chapter promising joy in abundance, supplying wine at a wedding feast, such extravagance, such generosity. Uh, the story has had me thinking, I'm going to close this way. The story has had me thinking about, um, you know, probably the best wedding reception I ever went to, uh, ever attended, but not, I don't know, the, the, the most extravagant one I, I ever went to was a friend of mine, he married a woman from Dallas, and uh, they don't play over there <laughs> when it comes to wedding receptions. Um, they, uh, I mean, it was just, it was, it was just beautiful. And uh, I was one of the groomsmen in the wedding, and uh, so, you know, we were just enjoying everything that was there. The the wedding reception was in a historic building in Dallas, okay? And it wasn't just in the building, it was the building, okay? It was a progressive dinner, and each course, you went up another floor, okay? So you had, like, this live band with music and wine and dancing and toasting and uh, like salad. And then, and then you went up a floor and there you had more music. Like the, the band was going up with us. Like I always wondered how they managed the sound equipment, but it was just like nothing was held back when it came to the, it all ended. I mean, this went on forever it felt like like we all lost track of time you know it ended on the rooftop where we had dessert and this band was there and we are dancing and I don't dance so if I'm dancing you know it was a good time and uh, and listen the whole listen I left like all good things have like the party's got to end at some point right and, and see, this is the promise that this is what's so amazing about this promise I left just being grateful that I got to be a part of it. Like I got to be there. Somebody else was being so extravagantly generous and I just got to be there. But that party had to end. And what Jesus is telling us is that he intends extravagant generosity to you in a feast that will never end. Revelations 19, John writes in Revelations 19 instructions that were given to him said write this down blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb if the wedding supper in Cana is a sign pointing to anything that's what it's pointing at blessed you know what blessed means happiness Happiness that will never run out. That's what Jesus is promising to you. Amen. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Oh, Jesus, what joy you promise. Will you give us a foretaste of such joy? Now, as we sing in response to this goodness that you've given to us, as we approach this meal, uh, I pray that you would fill our hearts with joy reminding us of the joy that is before us. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.